1: Check out joincolossus.com.
0: All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Dom Cook, and today's breakdown is a little bit different. Last week, we looked at the most popular sport in the world in football. Today, we're breaking down the business behind a sport in its relative infancy paddle. Paddle is a racket sport, played mostly in doubles on a court that takes elements from both squash and tennis. The court is a little bit smaller than a tennis court. It has a net in the middle and walls around the outside that you can play off. The ball, while it looks like a tennis ball, has less pressure and so bounces less. The racket is solid with holes in it. The sport started in the late 60s in Mexico and became big in many Spanish-speaking countries ever since. It then got a significant COVID bump and momentum has remained strong. To break down this burgeoning sport, I'm joined by Alan Flatt, CEO and president of EEP Capital. Among other things, we look at the dynamics of the sport that are making it popular, the investment characteristics of an esoteric asset like Paddle Club, and how sustainable its recent growth is. For those US listeners, we also cover the differences to a sport that has become big in your country, Pickleball. Please enjoy this business breakdown of Paddle. Alan, we've got a slightly different episode today. We're going to talk about Paddle, which I'm particularly excited to talk about because it's been described, particularly in Europe, as the fastest growing sport. And it's a mix of tennis and squash. Celebs are involved. I'm reliably informed that Zidane and Messi have got courts in their gardens. I'm fascinated to learn a bit more about the world and the business behind this very fast growing sport. So first off, can you paint a picture for us about the sport itself? How is it played? What does it look like? And then any stats around how big the sport is today would be very interesting to learn.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to get into this a little bit. The sport is relatively new, it's really a cross between tennis and squash at its core. It's played with tennis rules and tennis scoring, and it's played on basically a tennis court, although slightly smaller, but it has glass backs to it, so there's no out area, that you don't stand outside of the court, you stand in the court, and the ball can bounce off of the black glass which makes it exciting and fun and interesting and adds a whole unique dynamic to it. It's a fast-paced version of tennis with less range and less distance to travel that you can cover some ground. It's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I can vouch for that. I played for the first time a couple of weeks ago and, and particularly enjoyed myself, even as a newbie. In terms of how big the sport is today, have you got any stats that you can just paint a picture for us in terms
1: of where it sits or against other sports or just by itself? Sure. Yeah, I can go over a couple of numbers. Most measurements are in courts, and how many courts are installed. In Europe, there's about 37,000 courts currently. Projections show it growing at about 22% per year over the last few years and continue that growth. It's really taken off in Spain and Sweden primarily are probably the two biggest markets, and it's filling in the rest of Europe. It's been in Spain for a number of years. It's been in South America for a number of years. In South America, it's considered, Argentina in particular, it's considered one of the bigger sports. A lot of kids grow up playing football, soccer, football, and playing paddle. And those are the two main things in Spain today. I'm told there's more paddle players than there are tennis players. And that it's taken on cultural significance there as well, where it's a place that everyone goes to spend time with friends and get exercise. So it's taken off all over. It's coming to the U.S. There's only probably 300 courts maybe in the U.S. today, Although that's growing, that may double next year at the pace it's on between private courts, as you mentioned, in people's personal residences or in clubs that people are forming, it's taking off fast.
0: And I read somewhere in a Deloitte report that they think the market or the ecosystem at the moment is around $2 billion. Would that seem about right from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I think so. It's been a fragmented business, to be honest, because it's so new. And again, in certain countries, it's taken off. So some of these projections are still a little bit early in terms of where we're at today. But yeah, that's probably about right. Sure. Makes total sense.
0: So for me, it's really in the last couple of years that I've even learned what paddle is, but it seems to be everywhere. Once I first learned about it, everyone kept talking to me about the sport. You mentioned that it was particularly popular in Spain, but also South America. Where did it start? I have to imagine it's more recent than maybe tennis,
1: but what was the origin story and then the path from there until now? The sport began in 1969 when a gentleman in Acapulco built a court because he didn't have enough room for a tennis court. And so he just put a concrete wall backing the court and that became paddle. From there, it really took off in Argentina primarily. And then also... There were courts installed in Marbella, Spain, at some of the resorts. And I've talked to people who are now older, who grew up going to Marbella, playing paddle, and then that was it. That's the only time they ever played. And then from there, it took off in Spain in general. And some of the growth, I think, happened in Sweden because the Spain was primary vacation getaway location for the Swedish. And so then they adopted it. In terms of the recent search that I've noticed from my
0: friends, is there anything with regards to COVID or why have I started hearing about it more recently? Was there an inflection point in the last 5-10 years that has made it more of a mainstream sport?
1: Well, I think COVID had a huge impact. Maybe even pickleball had an impact here where people had more time. Maybe they weren't going to their health club. Maybe they were looking for something to do with friends that didn't involve going to a restaurant. And so paddle took off particularly again in Spain and Sweden that's when the buzz really when everyone started playing i'm surprised it actually didn't take off here in the US knowing what i know now at the time but it's taken a little bit longer but it's taking off now for sure
0: you mentioned pickleball and i'm pretty sure all our US listeners will be screaming at me for doing a paddle breakdown or not a pickleball breakdown so maybe we can just go into the differences between paddle and pickleball both in terms of the architecture of the sport itself but also some of the other general themes that you think about as an investor why choose paddle over something like pickleball
1: it's interesting when I'm talking to investors, particularly, or new people to the sport, if I'm talking to someone in the US, the first question is, how does it compare to pickleball? If I'm talking to someone overseas, it's a five-minute conversation. And they know exactly what I'm talking about So, and why I'm enthusiastic about it. The pickleball craze here has been phenomenal for racket sports, quite honestly. I think there's more people playing tennis today than we're playing pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. And part of it is probably pickleball. It's fun to play pickleball. You get out and you see your friends and you're outdoors, you're moving, but it is quite a bit different. The scoring is different. The movement is different. Paddle is more athletic. It's a little more competitive, although I've seen some pretty competitive pickleball games, but paddle is generally, there's going to be more movement. You're going to work up more of a sweat. It's also, I would say, perhaps maybe a little more addictive in that it's really exciting how you can use the glass to play your shots, whether you're hitting into a corner against the opposition, whether you're playing it off the glass when it's coming from you, to you, whether you can smash it out of the court. There's a excitement to paddle that arguably I haven't seen in pickleball quite the same way. And I love playing pickleball with friends and family too. So I think there's room for all three. Some of the press that's been done around it really emphasized that there's a room for tennis, pickleball and paddle and that they're unique and different. Paddle will have will attract people who are perhaps athletic and want a little more of a workout and perhaps who want to play something that's probably a little bit closer to tennis.
0: Whenever you read about paddle in particular, I have this felt experience too. They talk about the sport being easy to pick up, but very difficult to master, which maybe goes to your point around being addictive because I, as a first-time player, can get on the court with three other people and start playing, it feels sociable. I feel like I can at least participate. But then if you go from my first appearance into truly mastering the sport, that takes a lot of time and effort and thought. And I played with a few people who are a lot better than me. And you can see the nuances to the game, but even though we could still share the same core. So is that also part of the dynamic here in terms of maybe the growth that we've seen recently is more durable, just in terms of the underlying essence of the
1: sport? Yeah. I think you hit on it with the ability to get on a court and pick up a paddle and hit the ball. It's an underhand serve. So inherently it's a little bit easier than mastering an overhead tennis serve. From there, the hardest shots are playing off the wall, which do take time to learn, but you can certainly get on a court with players who are much better and enjoy the experience. Everyone can have a lot of fun. It won't be as much fun for the best players if they're on with someone who's more of a beginner, but you'll have a great time in terms of just being the social sport with two on two you get out and it does take a while to master to really be an expert. And I played in some games where I was completely outmatched. And I was like, "Wow, that was the whole nother level. And you learn quickly that there's a long ways to learn, but we still had a blast and you can get out and have fun. And it's not so difficult that you can't return the ball or you can't hit it back or you can't play the game or you can't participate. It's definitely something you can get out there and do.
0: I'd be curious as well, your story in terms of how you got into Paddle from an investment perspective. When did you first start thinking about this as a potential investment area for you or an asset class? And then how do you think about the opportunity today?
1: Our investments are relatively new. This is a relatively new endeavor just because it's relatively new to the US. So I was actually approached by a good friend of mine who's Swedish. We were family friends and he was living here in the US. And after COVID, he moved back with his family to Sweden. And he called up and said, hey, I've been working with some folks here who believe there's an opportunity to bring Paddle to the US and we think it will take off once people are aware of it and there's some opportunity there. I didn't actually know about the sport at the time. And so it took some looking into and understanding it. But once I understood what was happening in Europe, I became really interested, very excited about it, got involved and helped set up the company here. We had raised money from primarily Swedish NHL hockey players that knew the sport and loved to play it. And I hear the story over and over again. There's athletes all around the world, whether they be football players or basketball players or hockey players, that on their off days, they love to play paddle because it's social, takes their mind off things. It's a little bit of a cross-training type of an activity, and it's really fun for them, but still athletic and still gets them going. So we were fortunate to be able to raise some money. And when we looked at the opportunity again, we jumped on the opportunity to be here in the US and kind of be just a very early, early, early stage investor.
0: I saw that Manchester
1: City and Liverpool,
0: at least those two clubs, have got paddle courts at their training grounds for the players to, in their off time, to go and play and get their competitive juices flowing. We talk about this sport being very nascent still, particularly in the US. So, what is there for you to invest in? You- We've done some football breakdowns on particular on clubs, but obviously these are huge clubs generating proper income and revenue and profits. With regards to Paddle at this stage, what is there to invest in?
1: We are primarily investing in Paddle clubs. Paddle House in New York is one of our investments. And we think that's where at the moment, the most growth opportunities. Again, we watched what happened in Sweden. So my partners are all Swedish and live in either Sweden or Spain. And so They have watched the evolution and what's happened and how it took off and really the opportunity for early investors. The stories out of Finland, Sweden are compelling in terms of when you start in a good location with the right demographics and you get the right program going, including things like having coaches to teach the new players and so forth. We think that the club model is the best entry point at the moment. There are plenty of opportunities in equipment and clothing and so forth. And we've seen some of those opportunities. It's a little more of a fragmented market and also harder to distinguish. And there's also some really large players, well-known brand names that also are moving rapidly into paddle in the US. And so we're not as interested in that at the moment. We think there could be some opportunity. There are not enough places to play. The supply right now does not match the demand. And when clubs have opened, the prices have been very attractive because of the enthusiasm. And so we see that club opportunity where people can meet with their friends, meet new players. This is not a sport that has really, at least so far, taken off as... Pickleball really took off in a lot of public parks, and a lot of cities have converted tennis courts to pickleball. It's relatively easy to do. It's relatively inexpensive to build a pickleball court. Paddle's a little different. It's a little more expensive to build the court. So it's not an investment that cities are making at this point. And even in Europe, it's not very common to find municipal courts. They're really private clubs. And option today is there are a few tennis clubs that are starting to put in paddle courts or country clubs that are putting in paddle courts. One of the things that I keep hearing over and over again is that a lot of tennis players who switch to paddle, maybe their country club or their tennis club installed the court or a couple of courts, but they're taking groups of friends who are playing and migrating to paddle clubs where there's a bigger pool of players, more court time, more opportunities, specialized coaches. And we think thinking while the business grows in country clubs and tennis clubs, there's a role for paddle clubs with the community. And it seems like it's picking up that way we've also invested in a team for the pro paddle league which has been interesting and we can talk more about that but we think there are again there's an ecosystem being built today that doesn't exist and to be early in this ecosystem is pretty exciting
0: yeah and the report i was reading that said kind of the market is around 2 billion Dollars, give or take. was talking about the clubs being the majority portion of that 1.2 billion, I think, and then 200 million for building the courts themselves, which rhymes with what you were just saying there. And so maybe we should go in, break down on a unit basis of a club, and we can talk in generalities or specifics, depending on what you're most comfortable with. And I guess starting with location, you mentioned finding the right spots with the right demographic patterns to be able to, to build a club within. What makes an attractive location for a paddle club, and then we can start talking about what a club looks like in terms of courts, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So currently, demographic-wise, the opportunity really is finding an existing community, if you can, to start at least, that maybe exists of some expats from South America, expats from Sweden, expats from Spain who are here and who come and play and they're excited, or there are athletes that have heard about it, or actually there's a community in LA that's taken up with people putting paddle courts over their tennis courts. So finding that existing community is key, and then explaining the benefits of having a club where you can play with different people. So again, looking for the foreign-born players that grew up playing or played recently, looking for tennis players that are interested in a new sport. Right now, I think the demographic of if we had to target something at the moment, I think it's a 25 to 50 year old ideal market. I think that changes. I think people can play paddle. There's no age limit and it's exciting no matter what age, both for youth and for someone who's older. But I think at the moment where it's getting the most traction is in that more active 25 to 45 or 50 year old. Primarily, we're seeing that in New York where the buzz has taken off because there's this community of financial professionals or maybe people that were looking for something to do besides just meet up at a restaurant. And it's been incredible just the feedback and how everyone's talking about it. And in the US, I think that's been a big piece of it. I think in Miami, there's been a lot of buzz about it again because more of a Latino population that was used to playing in other countries. And so that's been huge. That's where we're seeing this start. We're also seeing, though, as soon as people start playing, they bring their friends, and then people want to learn. And I think eventually it grows to all demographics, really. I think there's an opportunity everywhere. Again, this is a very early stage of the business here in the US. So we're really aware of, we want to be very successful as we launch this. So we think that major cities with an urban population that has the disposable income and the time to play is really the starting point. And then
0: when you think about building a typical club to satisfy the demand in those particular locations, what does that look like? And what does it typically cost to be able to build that?
1: It's a moderately capital intensive business is how I describe it compared to other, whether it's hospitality or restaurants or sports clubs or anything else. So a typical club will cost probably if it's outdoor, maybe as little as a million dollars. That would probably be pushing the low end, I would think. And it depends on how many courts, obviously, too. Ideal number of courts is probably six to 10 in terms of the economics. Right now, there's not many that are even six or bigger here because of limitations on availability of space and landlords that don't know the business that are not renting because their industrial market is so strong for traditional industrial. But as that's changing... Going to see bigger centers. But so I would say outdoors, maybe a million dollars. Indoors, right now, three million. There are folks we've seen with plans that are quite a bit more, whether it be six, seven million dollars or eight million dollars even for a pedal center that typically will involve more hospitality, much bigger space. A lot of folks are putting in pickleball courts along with the pedal because, again, it's new and they want to attract people. So There's a lot of ways to run this. What we find really is that this is really a branding opportunity, I would say more than anything. And so the unit costs will vary widely between what the brand is and what level of service and what the amenities and is it just paddle? Is it pretty straightforward or is it hospitality involved? Is it more of a club feel? Is it higher end? Is it more entry level? What is it? And that will depend a little bit too on what the pricing looks like. Yeah, that
0: makes sense. In terms of making that decision, would it vary, I guess, both on what you can afford, but also the demographic that you're catering to and the location? So maybe if in a wealthier, more affluent place, you make it more of a club feel with restaurants and bars, et cetera, to cater to the more social atmosphere that paddle has. I and mean, in other places, maybe it's a little bit more of a low cost model where you just supply the courts and have a pay to play model.
1: Correct. I think really at this point in time, The best locations are well-suited for a higher-end experience and higher-end pricing. And as the sport evolves, that will then trickle down to locations that are not as high-end demographics, perhaps. And so then the cost will reflect that. There's a lot of different strategies. There's people that want to build, if you will, as a comparison, the Soho House of Paddle. And you can really only put one of those in a given market. And that's a completely different concept than putting in something that's really attractive to a more of a mass majority of players that are looking to get out and play with maybe a beer afterwards, or maybe a sandwich afterwards, or maybe coffee or something. So we'll see different varieties of how that looks. We our our experience with, for example, Padel House in Brooklyn has been a middle tier experience, which we think is phenomenal. We think they've done a great job of having a creating an experience where it's oriented towards the players, but there is a juice bar, coffee bar to go with it. There is a room with some activities that can rent out for groups. So, very straightforward, very attractive model. We've also seen that there's other opportunities, such as one of the companies we invested in is building out paddle clubs. They're also putting a lot of focus into a racket marketplace by holding a racket expo at a convention center in South Florida. And we think, again, those are the ancillary businesses that will continue to grow. That same company is also building out an e-commerce site. So we're seeing a diversification in that case, and that's helpful for our model to see them do other things as well. So
0: if we maybe focus on that particular location in Brooklyn, how many courts does it have? And what does the revenue model look like? Is it a pay-to-play thing for players? Or is it a membership type thing? So you can only play if you've got a membership and now you've got an annual or a monthly recurring income stream. And I guess as well, the monetizing from the juice bar and the coffee bar as well.
1: Dell House right now has four courts in Brooklyn in the existing facility. They're about to open some more. They've also opened three courts across the street that are outdoors that are temporary courts and their model is a combination of open to the public at one price and then a membership model for a monthly fee where it's a slightly lower price and a slightly more lead time to book courts. And again, it's a little bit of a hybrid model. Right now, the model has been probably most widely adopted with the ability to be open to the public And not be exclusive, like a country club would be the other extreme where you can only play if you're a member. Perhaps most everything we're seeing in this model is more like a health club facility with perhaps less membership, more hourly rental model with the opportunity then to sign up as a membership with some discounts. That seems to work well here in America. I think in Europe, the models are primarily less membership-driven and more just open. But in the US, membership is a well-established concept and creating a club concept is really popular. We'll see how that works. I think, again, building a brand is important and because being able to, for example, offer multiple locations where if, if courts are full in one place, you can go to another place. But building a community is key to this sport and being able to find players that you can play with, find times that you can play, so, having that open model again, I think seems pretty critical to overall the success here
0: and whether this is in Brooklyn or elsewhere, is there kind of a general price point that paddle courts at the moment are trending towards on average seems to make sense, and there's enough utilization from and there's demand to meet that price
1: so in New York, the prices, as you'd expect, are a fair amount higher than elsewhere because of the price of real estate so We realize in New York that to play, it's going to be a more expensive sport, just like everything in New York is probably a little more expensive. We're projecting at the moment, maybe on average, this is very rough, depends on what it is and where, but maybe in the $120 an hour for four people category. So that's $30 per person for an hour. Some people are looking at models that's a little less. Maybe you go even an hour and a half in your pricing model. I think some will be more. There are some courts in Manhattan that just recently opened. So temporary outdoor facility that are quite a bit more and very pricey by relative standards, but they're still seem to be full. So it will be all over the course. There will be different pricing models in different cities. And fortunately, based on the prevailing cost to install and margins, it seems like a great opportunity still.
0: So let's go into that piece of it. I guess the major cost is up front building the thing and then you've paying employees. So what does the margin profile of a club look like in general and then I guess in addition to that what's the payback period if you're spending say a million bucks up front to build the club.
1: We're projecting typical margins of about 35% to the bottom line which is fairly attractive. So it's a 2 to 3 year payback on average now There is a ramp-up period, depending at the moment, there's certainly a ramp-up period as you get players in and you teach them the sport and you get the word out and your social media kicks in. There's going to be more expenses as a startup because you're hiring more coaches, you're getting more people in, you're showing them how to play, you're creating more in-house tournaments to get people to play with different people at their level. So there are some startup costs, but in general, we're projecting roughly a 35% margin I think some people will actually generate higher than that, depending on the model. The payback could be quicker, which provides an opportunity to reinvest and expand. And there will be folks that will have maybe a lower margin, but maybe a higher price point, for example. So, this will move around a bit. But again, it's an attractive investment thesis at the moment, and it's really a growth story. This is really a consumer growth category, and so it's in the sports world. Again, I would say there's this hospitality component to it because people need to know how to run a club and make it welcoming. But in terms of businesses that are mature, this is an attractive proposition.
0: Just to bring that to life a little bit more, when you look across the kind of consumer landscape in terms of other comparisons, maybe not in the sporting world, what sort of business profile are you comparing this to? And potentially, is it gyms? Is it restaurants? Is
1: it country clubs? I think the best comparison is still gyms. And whether it be an Equinox-type experience or a Planet Fitness or LA Fitness. or We don't think it's exactly... Interestingly, it's not analogous exactly to tennis clubs. We've had a lot of people who are tennis club operators and have come to us and given us their opinions. And the way that tennis clubs generate revenue... I'm not an expert in tennis clubs, so there are probably people listening that know more about this than I do. But we find that there are different revenue sources where tennis clubs are maybe more driven towards clinics, more of the revenue from a paddle club is actually from the court time. So lessons make up a much smaller percentage. People take lessons to get started. They get to know it. And then maybe it's a lesson once in a while just to catch up, but it's really about getting on the court and playing and playing as often as possible and playing with your friends and getting out. So it has a different feel than other sports. If people are going to a health club, they're typically going three times a week, maybe if they're really into it. Maybe it's less or maybe it's more, but there is this idea of going back. Now, you don't pay every time you go to a health club. It's definitely more of a subscription model, which is a little more sticky. So it's not exactly analogous to that either, but it's some combination there where you're attracting people based on their wanting to get out often. I hear complaints that people learn to play. And they can only get courts once a week, or they can't even get courts once a week right now. And it's frustrating. So the industry is very keen to get more courts so people can come and play.
0: Yeah. And I guess it's worth underlining as well, the scale of the court. Versus a tennis court that you just referenced there in terms of tennis clubs, you can fit probably two or three paddle courts on the same footprint as one tennis court. And so you can fit a lot more of these in. But you just mentioned as well, the supply issue. How is that resolved? Is it by just incentivizing entrepreneurs to build more clubs? Or is it a town planning issue? What's the bottleneck and how does that get resolved?
1: Here in the US, it's happening. It's going to take another year before there's really... Enough places to play to really meet the initial demand. It depends on what part of the country you're in. In Miami, there are places to play. There's quite a bit more in the works, in Florida in general, in Tampa as well, and Orlando. And it's just more well known there. It was really the first point of entry in the United States. Houston has places to play. Texas is, again, a little bit at the forefront. New York is relatively new. And it's really yet to really take off on the West Coast, except San Diego. San Diego's had a facility for a couple of years now that's been very successful. The Taktika people have done well with that, and they're expanding rapidly. In different countries, this has evolved differently. In Sweden, this took off really quickly because it's relatively easy to build courts, and that was both good and bad. A lot of folks point to Sweden as both a huge success, but also some pitfalls because it grew really rapidly. They were able to put a lot of courts in very quickly because the land use is easier to build. In Germany, it's been much more difficult to build and it's taken off much more slowly. But of course, the courts that are built do well because there's not as much supply. And the U.S. is probably more like the latter. Land use is more difficult here and depends on where you are. But certainly in California, it's very difficult to build anything. And the existing warehouses where they could fit, there's huge demand for warehouse space. Warehouse space is incredibly low vacancy. But that will change. And I have heard from friends I know in the real estate business who've called me and said, Hey, I'm getting calls from Padel operators. And I don't know anything about this. And I've seen, you know, I know you're doing this. This is interesting. What's going on? Tell me about this. I say, look, it's for real. If you want a good long-term tenant and you're interested in a different use, especially if you're in a location with a lot of residences and the demographics are right, your economics are going to be phenomenal. You can definitely get premium economics for this and you should jump all over it. It's an opportunity. And I'm sure there's paddle operators that would even be willing to consider some equity swaps. I'm sure there's a lot of financial arrangements that people could figure out for startups that would be attractive to owners of the space. But it's going to take a while, both the land owners and the property owners are still getting used to it. They're still understanding it. And there's not a lot of that space where people live. The ceiling height is also a critical component. Typically, different people have different opinions, but let's just say 24 feet is probably minimum. And you can get by with lower, but generally you want a little bit higher. And so what goes into that then? If you have a lower ceiling, do you need to raise the roof, which is doable in some cases, and people are doing that, Do you keep searching for the spas? Do you go indoors or outdoors? In certain climates, you can stay outdoors, which is a little easier to find land. What will happen though is that there will be a benefit in that this won't grow so rapidly, so fast that we overbuild. And I think that's a key differentiator here in the U.S. and other markets too. Whether it's, I think the U.K. is somewhat similar. The you know again, I mentioned Germany, Italy has been easier to build. The sport's taken off. Rapidly, Spain has been easier to build, it's taken off rapidly. Sweden has taken off. So, when people can build, they fill up, but the economics change because then there's more competition. And so, we again view this as an early stage opportunity because we want to be at this stage of the curve at this point.
0: Yeah, super interesting. And I have to imagine as the sport matures and you start moving down into the lower income brackets, then obviously the margins will get compressed as well. So all of that seems to make sense to me. In terms of the rest of the ecosystem, we mentioned the pro league earlier, which either invested in one of the teams there. I'm curious about just the general ecosystem, what else there is. Most sports as a child and particularly you get into it because you're watching your favorite players on TV and then you want to go and replicate them. So you go and play and learn, et cetera. What does the pro league at the moment look like both in the US and around the world it doesn't seem to be a huge source of demand among the general populace to go and play this sport. But what does that look like now and how might that change?
1: The Pro Paddle League was formed earlier this year and a little bit on the premise that Americans love teams and they love their homegrown sports. So the rest of the world has had the enjoyment of the World Paddle Tour, the Premier Paddle Tour for a number of years, for quite a while actually. And those have been hugely successful. And they're really a media property to some extent. It's One of the things we really like about the sport is the media opportunities. I'll come back to the pro paddle league. We were approached early in our endeavors by media group here in LA that was interested in the sport. Obviously pickleball has done really well with ESPN and their media rights, but the belief is that paddle is a hugely fun sport to watch on a screen and that it's highly attractive, that there's a lot of opportunity. It's very early and people are trying to figure out how to monetize that and how to get more paddle on screens, but it will happen. My first experience with it was I went down to a premier paddle tour in Monterey, Mexico to watch the event. I had not been to a tournament previously and it was exciting to watch in person. It was huge fun. And I had texted my family and said, Hey, you might want to check this out on YouTube. And we spent the next hour and a half texting back and forth on on our phones about the plays and what was happening and my family was super excited and they were really thrilled with it. So touching on other opportunities, we think that this is a really fun sport to watch. Obviously, tennis is really well-established as a media sport and has great viewership and contracts and so forth around the world. And we think that Padel, as it takes off, will have some of the same opportunities. The media opportunity was partly what led us to invest in a team here in Los Angeles We own the Los Angeles Beat, which is a team within the Pro Paddle League. And we think there's a huge opportunity, again, for a fan base to bring the sport here to Los Angeles and to create a brand around that and to market it and create an American experience, actually. It's an international sport, but we think there will be some unique American twists and turns given the market here for existing sports.
0: And I want to go into the league specifically, but just a quick question in terms of why it's an attractive media asset. What is it particularly about the sport that makes it interesting or good to watch on TV? Because I guess you have tennis, which is a popular sport that people like to watch on TV, but then you have squash, which has never really found its market. Maybe it's the ball's too small and too difficult to find, to see because it moves too quickly. Are there specific attributes that make this particularly interesting?
1: I think so. There are some things that are interesting. First of all, it's a glass court. So you can really see the play clearly. But I think more than that, it's the athleticism of the players. The players are running back to the wall, back to the glass, rather, up to the net. If the ball is, they can smash the ball out of the court, which is exciting when it happens. If there's a volley back and forth and there's they're going back and forth five times and then someone smashes it out of the court, it wins the match or wins the point or wins the game. It's thrilling. It's exciting. It's unlike tennis in that sense. It's if the ball is smashed out of the court the players can actually run out of the court and hit the ball back into the court and the first time you see it you can't believe that any athlete can possibly do that but these athletes they're amazing they can move and they have reaction time that is when the ball is coming at them they react and they get the ball to the other side and it almost looks not human it almost looks these people are superhuman it's really fun to watch when the matches keep going and Especially, I watched a lot of teams this spring when the inaugural season of the Pro Paddle League took place, and I watched some of it here at home on the TV. It was a blast. I spent many Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings watching games for three hours. I'm not generally a TV person or stay-at-home person living in Southern California with a lot to do, but I did, and it was fun. It's an experience that is really great to watch, so it's exciting for fans. These athletes are really something. These professional athletes that are doing this are incredible.
0: So the Pro Paddle League in particular, so it started last year. What does the schedule look like? And have you got teams all across the US or is it concentrated at the moment in one particular part of the country? Just talk me through some of the dynamics there.
1: This was our inaugural season. We were actually the first team to sign up with the Pro Paddle League. We wanted Los Angeles due to the market size and so forth. And then pretty quickly, there were a total of seven teams. So there was San Diego, Miami, Toronto, Arkansas, Cancun, and Las Vegas, I believe. So we had a tournament with seven teams, and we did that in between May and June of this year. So we really just played each team once. We did a tournament style in Tampa to get it started and work out some of the kinks and understand it. So we did that. Now we're in our planning for our next season season. We'll probably have a grouping of East Coast teams and West Coast teams. We currently have a total of 10 teams. We've added New York and Houston and Orlando. Daddy Yankee actually bought the Orlando team, which was huge for the league and huge for the sport. And we expect to have some East and West tournaments that then the top teams from each division will then play in a championship. And we're working out the exact timing and the exact format. This is still an early, early part of the sport. And we think the opportunity is huge, but we don't want to grow too fast. So I don't know if the plans are exactly to have maybe 12 teams or 14 teams, but the goal is to not overwhelm with a lot of teams too quickly and to grow this very thoughtfully.
0: These might be some very stupid questions, but is a team simply two players or do you have a men's doubles pair, a female doubles pair, a mixed? What does that look like just from the very basic level?
1: The game is actually played with two women playing two women on the other team and then two men playing two men. So you need at least four players to really have the team. And then the last season was set up where if we won both games, then we won the match. We get the win. If we tie 1-1, then there's a tiebreaker of a mixed doubles, one man, one woman playing one man, one woman. And then the winner of that match then determines who wins that game. I don't know exactly if that's the format going forward, but I will say when you're watching the sport, this is a sport that is very attractive for women players. And we think that it's very exciting, both the men and the women. We're really excited about the opportunity to be a mixed gender team, a mixed gender sport. And we think that's part of the appeal of this going forward. And it's been fun to watch that and see that and see the growth of that.
0: I'm fascinated just generally about how you start Sports League and go from zero to one and 100. And you talked about not wanting to grow too quickly. What's on the strategic priority list of things that you do want to do? Do you have a media partner at the moment?
1: And what other things do you think about as you develop the league? I'm not involved with the management of the league, so I'm going to be somewhat limited to speak here. It's like a startup, really have to run it like a startup. And you really have to think about what are your revenue pillars and what are your brand pillars? So in this case, the revenue pillars in the long term are really media, sponsorship, and people coming in person. And we know the people coming in person is going to take a little while because we need to get the players. Now, if we were in Spain or we were in Sweden, I don't think that would be a problem, or we'd have no problem. Again, when I was in Mexico at the premier paddle tour, the stands were full, you know, it was not a problem to get people, but it's still new here. So at the moment we need to build the fan base. We need the people that can attend in person. But fortunately, to some extent, the sponsorships are already happening because a lot of international brands are aware of the potential and they see the opportunity, just like my partners in Sweden. Said, let's, hey, let's start this in the United States because of what we think is a very early stage opportunity. They're seeing the exact same thing. So they're putting money into the US, they're putting effort here. So, sponsorship, and then last thing I said was media. And the media is still evolving, obviously. And I don't know the latest in terms of where we will appear. This past season, we were on CBS Sports and we were also on YouTube. And that was rebroadcast in different local markets in different ways. So, we'll see. Where that goes for next season, that's always something we're working on. But we're not too concerned about it. If we put on the right product and we deliver the right experience for people, we're confident that we'll get there. But it is a startup. And it means starting from scratch with the marketing, the branding. When we started the team, we were the first team to put down our reservation, if you will, or our affiliation agreement. And then we waited for confirmation that the other teams had signed up. There was a gap there for a couple of weeks. And so we got the notice that, okay, we have seven teams, we're going to kick off this league. So we literally dropped everything we were doing for two weeks and we worked on our branding, which was probably one of the most exciting times in business that I've had because we knew we had to get everything done very quickly so we could get our website built and we could get our uniforms ordered. And it was fun. It was exciting. We're proud of the work we did to get that done quickly and get it out there. And what color did you go with? We went with a blue primary and yellow background, yellow lettering. We picked the colors in part because a lot of the California teams that are already existing already have yellow and blue in their scheme. And we thought it was a great way to represent the tradition of sports in California and build a fan base with that. And we actually chose a name, so we chose Los Angeles beat, which was interesting because We didn't go for the traditional animal or something else that a lot of teams, we went for something that we thought would have youth appeal would be a little more to use a phrase, maybe street than traditional tennis. Wanted to go for something that was a little hipper and younger and youthful. Another reason was the longstanding music roots from LA. We thought it was a great representation of one of the core industries in LA that has resonance across the globe. And we thought that would be a great thing for the team to represent.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And actually gets into a question that I want to ask about how paddle as a sport just grows. It's obviously been on tremendous growth rate recently. What does it need to keep growing and get even bigger from where it is today in terms of the growth rate itself? What are the big markers that you look for the sport as a whole to get through on the path that you'd like to see it go? One
1: of the things I love about our investment is that we're not completely dependent on Mass adoption of the sport. One of the things that in the U.S. that's very different, I think, than other parts of the world is just the variety of things that people do here, especially I'm in Southern California. And so between professional sports teams that are already established and then other activities, whether it even be in my community, mountain biking and surfing, and there's so many things to do here. So it doesn't even need to be what pickleball is, quite honestly. But what we are looking for is an adoption that creates enough players so that the players playing feel like there's a variety of people they're playing against. They can bring their friends. If they're not tennis players, they can still pick it up. We think there's a huge opportunity to carve out a niche, even in a crowded space. I think that paddle, it's so much fun to play. It's literally addictive. Once you play a few times, it gets in your brain and you want to go back and you want to play again you're looking for locations. The key is to have something close enough to home so that you're not driving half an hour or driving an hour or not on a subway forever. You need enough locations nearby so that it's a little more convenient. And I think that'll happen. So I think the mass adoption piece of it, what we need is enough courts close to people where they live that we can get a big enough crowd. I think the rest takes care of itself because it's so much fun to play.
0: I guess there is some element where you need brand recognition of the sport in general. You talked about tenants who are unsure of potential paddle occupants, and I guess if you can solve educating the general population on paddle as a whole will make some of those challenges easier and allow you to be able to build courts nearer people's homes. One of the things that I see keep popping up is the Olympics as the flagship. If you would say paddle is an Olympic sport, then that very quickly settles maybe the question for landlords and say, "Yep, this is a real thing." Is that on either your radar or the sport's radar? And how close is it to potentially becoming an Olympic sport?
1: Well, certainly people are working on it. There is an international paddle federation that has organizations in every country, which is one of the criteria that there's an organizing body that can push the sport. In the United States, it's the USPA, the United States Paddle Association. And there's organizations around the world doing the exact same thing. So They're active. It will not be in the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles. Sadly for me, disappointed by that, but there's not enough time to get it there. So I think right now, the focus is maybe on 2032, which I believe is in Brisbane. We'll see. Again, if you're in certain countries around the world, you would be amazed that it's not in the Olympics because it's so popular. And we know we work with these professional athletes that it would be exciting to see them in the Olympics. There's players that have been playing since they were youth that are phenomenal and watching the sport. I think if it was an Olympic sport, I think the TV coverage would be there, the media coverage would be there because it's so much fun to watch. Again, maybe not as many people the first year know about it, but it would, I think it would have viewership that would take off. So we're hopeful that it could be announced for 2032. So we'll have to see about that.
0: I'd learn a bit about the Olympic process of getting new sports into the Olympics, there seems to be five criteria and it meets four at the moment. It just there is one criteria that says the sport needs to be competed in 75 countries over four continents for men and 40 countries over three continents for women. And so as the sport grows, hopefully it'll we'll tick that box and then there'll be even less resistance to it potentially becoming an Olympic sport, which will be very interesting to see. On the flip side of the opportunities coin, we like to talk about the risks and particularly I guess you've talked about how Maybe this isn't so much a general paddle story for you as an investor. It's either slightly more idiosyncratic. So, when you think about your investments and in your portfolio in the sport, what do you see as the risk? What keeps you up at night as you think about those things?
1: Well, certainly the risks are, again, in a crowded real estate market, that there's a lot of things for people to do. There's just not enough courts right now. And then the business will take longer to build out as a result. We definitely see that we need to get courts going. Of course, that's also the flip side of not so much supply that it hurts the economics of this business. Well, we're not worried about overbuilding, certainly there could be price pressure at some point. I think down the road, go out five years from now, you could see price pressure. You could see that there's enough courts or that the paddle centers need to reduce prices. That completely could happen. So we think about this as like a curve we're at the very, very, very beginning of the curve, comes up and then it plateaus a little bit, maybe declines slightly at some point in the future. Those are all things that we plan for and we think about and how we invest. And when we look at new investments, we underwrite them not as aggressively typically as the companies do. We look at downside scenarios and we look at if the revenue dips or let's say there's a period of time where for some reason something has to close. What happens if there's a three-month closure for some reason? You know, now we look at all those risks and we evaluate them. I think the thesis is still pretty strong. So at the moment, it's more of speed to market. The real risk is who's first and who gets the best locations and who can get the right brand? What entrepreneurs can execute? It's great to plan. Everyone, maybe people have played in their home country or now they're expats living here and they want to start a business and Great planning, great connections, but can they execute? So those are just typical everyday business risks that we evaluate pretty rigorously and when we're looking at investments. And again, just considering the longer term. There are other examples like squash. I think you brought it up earlier. Why did squash not take off in the same way? And I think there's some pretty interesting both comparisons and then some pretty important differences. And there are other sports too that maybe people thought was the next big thing that maybe has plateaued or just didn't get quite the same reaction. The big difference is when you walk into a paddle center, let's say you go into a Paddle House in New York and you look around, there's four paddle courts and you can see friends that might be playing in one court and you can see what's happening. And you go on your court and maybe you stop play for a minute to go watch someone else and you're meeting in the hallways and it's a little different. I remember from my college days playing squash, where you go down a kind of a dark hallway and you go in a room and you're playing one on one and you're by yourself. It was not social. It was super fun, but it wasn't social. And when you play padel it's social. That's why people play pickleball. Pickleball is a great way to get your body moving, get outdoors, and see your friends. Paddle has all of that with an amped up athleticism for those that want it. We look at all of that, we look at all of the potential risks. I come from a banking background most of my career and commercial real estate. And so risk management is in my blood. And I think about that and we evaluate that backwards and forwards.
0: And we always end these discussions with the same question, which is about lessons. And I'm particularly interested in your answer here, given your career in banking and real estate and your recent fray into paddle and venture style investing, what have you learned through this experience and just working in this new sector that you can either share with investors or operators out there?
1: I think the biggest thing that we have learned is, again, our due diligence process. And I think when evaluating a new business of any sort, coming up with a set of criteria that you will use to move forward or not move forward is key. And we've come up with a set of 10 operating criteria that we use where we don't need every single box to be checked, but we need a significant number of them to be checked before I move forward. I think that's any investment, there's a gut feel. So you have to feel good about it. You have to feel, hey, this is something that's important. But then you have to go through the rigorous process. I also think it's really important that if you believe in something, if you see an opportunity out there, if something is really grabbing you where you know something about an industry that maybe others don't know and you feel like there's an opportunity, go for it and pursue it and see where it goes but also don't be afraid to change don't be afraid to adjust course while you're at it because you learn things along the way that you don't necessarily know or you thought you knew but then maybe you know someone else knows more when we first started working on this project we thought we had a model based on what was going on in sweden and spain and we knew we had to adapt it to the u.s And I had a background in commercial real estate as well, and so felt that we had a lot of ideas about how we could structure this. We learned as much from some of the companies we were investing in who helped us understand where the market was, where the legal structure should be, where we should pursue some of these opportunities. And then we learned what some of the opportunities we shouldn't pursue, which we thought would be great businesses, but maybe we just couldn't understand where we were going to make money at it in the long run. There's been super interesting breakdown of a
0: new, exciting, fast-growing sport. Delighted that you could join us to explain more about the sport and how you're investing in it and behind it. Very excited to see where it goes. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This was really fun.
1: I appreciate the ability to do this.
0: To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out JoinColossus.com.
1: That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com.